Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, check us out on YouTube or Instagram at Truth on the Hill and enjoy. This episode was supposed to be. I was I was going to make this video to be about the passion account. Um, that is the story of Jesus's death, his death, burial, and resurrection. But I realized in preparation for this video that there wasn't really a point in me telling you that story or that account without telling you why it's important or why you should even believe it in the first place. So this video is going to be a little different because rather than going through a Bible story or an account from the Bible, instead, we're going to just talk about the Bible itself, specifically the beginning of the New Testament, the four Gospels. The four Gospels were written by um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the word gospel essentially means good news. It was the accounts of eyewitnesses that were to share the good news about who Jesus was and what he did for humanity. The first three of these Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels. And the word synoptic means seen together. So they follow a similar timeline, a similar order of events, and they show Jesus's life from start to finish. John's, however, is a little bit different. John's Gospel is still about the life of Jesus, but rather than being in a timeline, it's more topical. And we'll explain why that is in a moment. But how do we even get the Gospels? So there's three primary theories about how we got the Gospels. And honestly, two of them are pretty historically negligent compared to the third one. So... Um, the first one is called the two-source hypothesis. Um, basically, the idea of this is that Matthew and John were written after Mark, which is a pretty um, common theory. Most people, most biblical scholars would agree with that. So they used Mark as a source for their Gospels. But... They also have some matching stuff that isn't in Mark. So um, people came up with the Q source, which um, Q stands for QL, which literally just means source in German. So the source source uh, that was a different source that nobody has ever been able to find and nobody knows where it exists or if it exists, but it does exist according to this theory. And it has details that Mark doesn't have. And so Matthew and Luke wrote their gospels by taking parts of Mark and parts of Luke, uh, parts of Q and then adding their own spice to it to end up with their two gospels. The issue is, like I stated, nobody has any evidence at all about the Q source. Um, the second hypothesis is the four source hypothesis, which is basically the exact same thing, but 
more convoluted by adding not just the Q source, but also an M and an L source for Matthew and Luke that are two other sources outside of Mark and Q that Matthew and Luke took from to complete the Gospels. Now, again, like the Q source, the M and the L sources have no evidence in history, um, either through being mentioned in other writings or through any sort of archaeological evidence of them. So really, these two sources are attempts at explaining how the three synoptic gospels were written without, in my opinion, without using common sense. And the reason I say that is because of the third hypothesis, which in my opinion makes the most sense, which is that Matthew and Luke and Mark, who Mark was John Mark, he was not an apostle, but he was um, one of the disciples of Peter the Apostle. So Mark wrote Peter's experience. Matthew and Luke were both apostles. Hey, really quickly want to jump in here and explain a little bit more about um, the Gospel of Luke. So the important part about the Gospels is that they were all written from the accounts of apostles. Apostles were the 12 people that Jesus decided to spend the most amount of time with. Um, in that group, for Matthew was the Apostle Matthew. For Mark was the, um, was the Apostle Peter. And for John was the Apostle John. Luke is a little bit different, though. Um, the Apostle Paul was not an apostle until after Jesus left earth. So he wasn't one of the initial 12 apostles that we read about in the Gospels. However, to be able to be an apostle, you had to be an eyewitness of Christ. And Paul was an eyewitness of Christ, and he probably would have been, um, would have seen things that Christ did before Christ died and raised from the grave and ascended to heaven. Not only that, but he also had his own experience, a personal experience with Christ later on down the road. So we see that, um, that, that Paul was an apostle. But more importantly, in the very beginning of Luke, I have my Bible here. In the very beginning of Luke, um, when he is giving a, an address to Theophilus, he says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me, also having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So we see here two things. One, that 
Luke's account is written off of the accounts of eyewitnesses. Most likely, since he was uh, such good friends with Paul, he probably wrote his book based off of the eyewitness accounts of all of the other apostles as well. Um, the 12 apostles specifically. Not only that, but he also states that he has a perfect understanding, which means that to some degree there was a divine revelation, um, which means that God gave him the events to some degree or an understanding of the timeline to some degree so that he could write it correctly and so that he could write it perfectly in perfect understanding for us to be able to read. So I wanted to clear that up. Um, he was not an apostle, which I did misspeak about. And um, Paul was an apostle, but he was not one of the 12 apostles. We can go over kind of the how many apostles there were and what happens with them in a different video because it would be pretty long to explain. But he was an apostle. Paul was an apostle, Luke was not, but Luke's gospel is based off of the eyewitness accounts of uh, multiple people, the eyewitnesses that he says, um, as well as most likely some sort of revelation from God, some sort of understanding from God about how all of it works. And so the third theory is that all three of them, Matthew, Peter, who Mark wrote for, and Luke, all shared the same experience. And because they shared the same experience, they all wrote very similar things about what happened. And since all three of them were doing a timeline, they wrote it in the same order. And because each of the three people were different, they wrote some things slightly differently. They included some details where other people lacked details because that's what happens if you ask three people to give an account of something. If three people went and went on vacation and all three of them came back and you asked them separately, how was vacation? What did you guys do? The three of them would give a very similar timeline of events, um, you know, arrival, what we did the first night, what we did the second night, departure, things like that. They would give um, probably some similar details about where, uh, where they went, who they talked to, what they did, but they would also give different details. Some people notice other things. Uh, some people notice some things more than others um, because of who they are, their background, where they were standing at the time, right? So details can shift and change depending on who is telling the story. I don't know why that isn't just the case consensus. I don't know why these two theories even came into existence. Um, but those are, those are the three main theories. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, well, Matthew, Peter, Luke, and John 
were all apostles of Jesus Christ. They followed him for three years, roughly, and lived every single day with Jesus. Um, and because of that, they all shared the same experiences. But Matthew was a uh, tax collector before he became a before he became an apostle of Jesus. Uh, Peter and John were both fishermen, and Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. So the so Matthew, Peter, and Luke all came from three different professions, three different education levels, different backgrounds. So of course they're gonna look at different things differently and they're gonna pick out different details. So now you might be asking, well, I've heard that there are more than four gospels and you would be correct. There are other books that title themselves as gospels. There's the gospel of Peter, not the gospel of Mark who wrote it according to the account of Peter, but the gospel of Peter, um, the gospel of Thomas, of Mary, of Judas, of Philip. These are all, uh, false, fake gospels. They were written by people who were not apostles, who did not, um, who did not actually live the events, but they ascribed the name of someone important in Christianity to the gospel. The reason for this was there was a heresy, um, there were a lot of heresies in the early church, but there were some very specific heresies that arose early in the Christian church in the early hundreds. And what the people did, um, oh, a heresy, by the way, is um, basically a false gospel, taking the gospel and twisting it into being something different that would lead people away from Christ rather than leading them towards Christ. And um, what the followers of these heresies would do is they would write books like the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Thomas and or the Gospel of Philip, and then they would ascribe it to Peter, Thomas, Philip, respectively, and then try to start circulating those as actual gospels that were written by the people they claimed to be and were just recently found. Um, all of these are thrown out because they do not agree with the rest of the Bible. Um, for example, this will be a quick and easy example. Um, throughout the four gospels that are canon, um, Jesus lives with his apostles. They travel around. There are disciples that follow him as well. Um, but they are not mentioned very often. And there is no mention of Jesus having any sort of romantic interest in anyone. In the Gospel of Philip, um, Jesus is shown as having a romantic relationship with Mary Magdalene. Um, and... Uh, kissing her and things like that, which doesn't match with any of the other way, any of the way that Jesus acts in any of the rest of the Gospels. So because of that, because there are not any 
manuscripts earlier than a few hundred, like multiple hundreds of years after Christ. Um, the early church sussed out that it was a fake gospel and discarded it as being part of a heresy. Um, a really good example of this would be Eusebius's writings. So Eusebius was um, a Christian bishop and a historian who lived in the 4th century, which is the 300s AD. And he was writing, uh, he wrote a book uh, called The Church Fathers and the Church History. Uh, it's called Church History Book. This is from book six, I think, from Eusebius's writing. Um, and he was writing about another historian named Origen. Origen lived um, probably only about two generations away from the apostles. Um, the apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, also wrote the final book in the New Testament, Revelation. Revelation was written in about 95 AD, and Origen was born in 185, so two or three generations away from John, um, which is incredibly close, a very, very early Christian historian. And he wrote this. He says, Among the four Gospels, which are only which are the only indisputable ones in the church of God under heaven. I have learned by tradition that the first was written by Matthew, who was once a publican or a tax collector, but afterwards an apostle of Jesus Christ. And it was prepared for the converts from Judaism and published in the Hebrew language. We'll talk about that in a second. The second is by Mark, who composed it according to the instructions of Peter who in his Catholic epistles, that meaning his global epistles, um, talking about first and second Peter, acknowledges him as a son, saying, the church that is at Babylon elected together with you salutes you, and so does Marcus, my son. And the third, by Luke, the gospel commended by Paul and composed for Gentile converts. Uh, Last of all, that by John. In the fifth book of his expectations of John's gospel, he speaks thus concerning the epistles of the apostles. So we see here that um, these are the four gospels that in sometime in the second century AD, uh, these were the four gospels that were indisputably the Gospels for the Church of God. Um, so what are the four Gospels? So the four Gospels, like I said, were written by um, by four different pe people, the Apostle Matthew, uh, John Mark, which is why it's just called Mark and not John Mark, because there's also a Gospel according to John. So the Gospel according to Mark um according to Luke and according to John. The Gospel of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience, which is what uh, Origen tells us. And we can see that not just in the, not just because of what Origen says, but also in the writing of the Gospel itself. 
we see that there are a lot of customs in Matthew that are talked about but not explained, which shows that he expected the readers of the book to understand the Jewish culture and the Jewish customs prior to reading the book. He didn't feel the need to explain it. He also opens up with a genealogy. Genealogies were incredibly important and still are incredibly important to um, Jews today because they show that they are truly of the line of David, of the line of Abraham, that they truly are Jews. He also quotes many, many prophecies throughout the entire book showing um, his overall goal for the gospel, which is to show that Jesus was the Messiah that the Jews were waiting for. Um, essentially, the Old Testament was looking towards the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It was looking towards Jesus. And so Matthew pulls verses from all over the Old Testament to show this was a prophecy about Jesus. This is how it came true. This was another prophecy about Jesus. This is how it came true. And he shows this is a prophecy, and then this is what I watched take place. This is how it came to be, right? Um, the second is the gospel according to Mark. Now, this, rather than being to Jews, this was to Gentiles. This book was written to Roman believers, and like I said before, it was based off of Peter's account. Um, a lot of times, Mark would translate uh, Aramaic terms, so the Jews at the time would, um, would have known Hebrew and Aramaic, and also some of them would have known Greek. Um, and so he would translate a lot of the Aramaic terms to into Greek so that the readers would be able to understand exactly what was going on. Along with that, he would explain a lot of Jewish customs and exactly why things were happening. And the time system that he used was according to the Roman system and not according to the Hebrew system, which would have been weird obviously, to give a Jewish audience a book that wasn't according to their time system. So, obviously, he would have had to, if he wrote it with a Roman time system, it would make sense to give it to Romans. And the whole point of Mark's gospel is to show Jesus as the suffering servant, to show him as being a, um, being humble and being a servant that came rather than a conqueror. Um, the third gospel is the gospel according to Luke. Luke is the third gospel, and Luke was written by a man named Luke, obviously, who was not an apostle of Jesus. Uh, rather, he was a very close friend of Paul, who was an apostle of Jesus. Um he, interestingly, is the only Gentile to have written a gospel, and I think, um, yeah, and the is the only Gentile to have written a book of the New Testament. Um, and he actually wrote two. He wrote the gospel according to Luke, and then also he wrote 
um, the Acts of the Apostles, which is the fifth book in the New Testament. And it outlines the early church and their work of spreading the gospel. Luke never names himself, um, but he is mentioned by Paul multiple times and um, is called by Paul the beloved physician. He was very well written in Greek and very, very meticulous in his historical details as well as in the healing records of how Jesus healed people, which makes sense since he was a physician. He would have wanted to be more meticulous and more interested in that. Go uh, the Gospel of Luke is not written to a people like Matthew being written to the Hebrews or the Jews um, or the Gospel of Mark being written to the Gentiles. Instead, Luke wrote both the Gospel and the Acts of the Apostles to a man named uh, Theophilus. We have no clue who Theophilus is. Um, it was probably even a nickname, um, the lover of God, someone who loves God. So it could have been written to anybody. But the whole point of the Gospel of Luke is to show Jesus as the Son of Man, to show that he was human in nature, um, and to be able to um, show that Jesus was fully human but still had the power of God. Um, so those are the three synoptic gospels, and they follow a very similar timeline of Jesus's life. The final gospel is the gospel according to John. John was one of the 12 apostles, and he um, would have been in the inner circle with Simon Peter, who is the, uh, the origin of Mark's account. Um, tradition holds that John wrote the gospel after knowing about the three other gospels. So he knew and had probably read the three other, the three other, the synoptic gospels, and then decided to write one of himself, uh, for himself. Um, and it's interesting because since he knew that the timeline of the life of Christ had already been documented well, he chose to go a different path with his gospel. In this path, he writes specifically um, for the purpose uh, that you may believe is why he writes it. And it's basically the flip side of the coin from the Gospel of Luke. So the Gospel of Luke focuses on Jesus as the Son of Man, as being fully human. But John's Gospel focuses on Jesus being the Son of God, being fully God. And we can see this very distinctly um, just in the very, very first chapter of the Gospel of John. Um, let me flip through it. In the very, very beginning, John, um, literally John 1, 1 um, through 
I don't know, I'll go to like four or five, and then I'll skip to verse 14. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So that's talking about the word. Um, and it starts kind of cryptically. And when we get to verse 14, we see it explained. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, and the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so we see here, that John starts his gospel not showing a genealogy like Matthew or Luke do, and not showing Jesus as being a humble servant like Mark does, but instead he shows Jesus as being the eternal God, and not just that, but the creator of the universe, that Everything that was made was made through him. He is in Genesis. If you watched my, um, if you watched my Adam and Eve video, he was there at the beginning of time, and everything that was made was made through him because he is the Word. He is the Word of God, right? So that is the four gospels that chronicle the life and miracles and teachings death burial and resurrection of jesus christ but how do we trust them how do we know that they are actually real that they're actually um that they're actually eyewitness accounts how could we believe any of those and for that, um, I'm going to put up a graph, uh, not a graph, a table. I'm going to put up a table for you guys just to show you a comparison chart of manuscripts. This, for me, is the biggest evidence that we could ever have. Um, in history class, we learn about Herodotus, about Pliny the Younger sometimes, about Caesar, Tacticus, Aristotle, you learn about Homer, then the Iliad. Um, we learn about Plato. We learn about all of these different historical figures, and we learn about their lives from their writings. But if we look here, um, let's take, for instance, Plato. Um, the earliest copy of Plato is... 900 AD, which means there's about 1,200, 1,200 years between when Plato was alive and when we have the earliest copy of his works. And we only have seven copies of his works. Um, we'll go with Herodotus. Herodotus uh, lived at a very similar time to uh to plato they kind of bump up right against each other earliest copy 900 a.d again uh which means we have 
1,300 years rather than 1,200 years between them, and we only have eight copies of Herodotus's work. Let's jump down a little bit to people that are more credible. Aristotle. Aristotle, um, we have uh, roughly 49 copies of his work. That's pretty good. Um, with a 1,400-year span between his life in, uh, in you know, the 300s BC and our earliest copy at 1,100 AD. We'll go with Homer. Homer, another great historical um, historical reference. Uh, we know that it was written somewhere around 900 BC. Our earliest copy is 400 BC, so that's only about 500 years. That's pretty good. It's better than all the other ones. Um, <laughs> 500 years, and we have 643 copies of his works. That's great. And the accuracy between the copies, all 643 of them, um, there's only a 5% error. So 95% accurate of the 643 copies of the manuscripts. Now let's look at the New Testament. They were all, all of the New Testament was written in the first century AD, probably somewhere between 50 and 100 AD. Our earliest copy of the New Testament is from the second century AD, around 130, which means we have less than 100 years between the original copy and the earliest copy. But beyond that, there are 5,600, 5,600 copies of the New Testament manuscripts. And beyond that, it has a 99.5% accuracy between the thousands of copies. Now, when we talk about those manuscripts, those are only manuscripts in, in Greek. Um, there are also manuscripts in Syriac, Latin, Coptic, and Aramaic, which ends up totaling over 24,000 copies of New Testament manuscripts that still hold a 99.5% accuracy. Most of those inaccuracies, most of the 0.5% of inaccuracies in the New Testament are things like spelling John with a J-O-H-N versus J-O-N or other spelling errors like that or... Um, changing the way that sentences are structured, which would happen when you are translating a document from one language to another. So in my opinion, if you're going to take your history class seriously, and you are going to believe that when you are reading 
accounts from Plato, from Caesar, from Tacticus, from um, Aristotle, from Homer. If you believe that when you read those, you're reading something that's actually history, it is beyond ludicrous to me to think that those would be history when there's less than 50 copies of the majority of the people that I just mentioned and less than 10 for most of them when there are thousands and thousands and thousands of copies of the New Testament and the New Testament writers. In my opinion, in my opinion, it's ludicrous. So we'll say whether you'd, whether you'd like to believe it or not, whether that is convincing evidence to you, it is to me. But whether it is to you or not, we'll say that the four Gospels and the rest of the New Testament is real, that it was written by who it says it was written by, and that the Gospels themselves are eyewitness accounts of this man named Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, who lived and grew up in Galilee, in Judea, um, around the turn of history. So what do they say about Jesus and why and what important things do they say about him? Well, I'm going to give you guys three very important things that the Bible says about who Jesus was. Um, the first is that he is fully God and fully man. This is where the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John kind of come into play here. Um, the idea of this is called the hypostatic union. That's your big theological term. And it's the idea that Jesus was both fully God and fully man, which doesn't make sense to humans. Um, you can't be 200% of something, right? You can't be 100% God and 100% man. But... If he's the creator of the universe, and uh, the Bible says he is, and as we just saw, it is more historically founded than every other, almost every other ancient history book that we could have, then he could do whatever he wants. And if he'd like to be fully God and fully man, that's up to him. But how do we know that? What is the, how does the Bible say that he is fully God and fully man? Well, for that, we're going to look at a couple different places in the Gospels. Um, and I'm just going to give you guys one of each, one of fully God, one of fully man. Um, the first is going to be in Mark chapter 2. So in Mark chapter 2, verse 5, Jesus sees um, Jesus' teaching in a house. And there is a group of friends and a man who has been paralyzed since birth, I believe. And the men are trying to get their friend to Jesus. And the way is blocked because there are so many people 
between them and Jesus, um, who's inside of a house. So instead of giving up, they go around and they climb on top of the house and they take away uh, part of the roof of the house and they put their friend on ropes on the cot that he was on, on like the stretcher that he was on. And they lower him through the ceiling into the middle of the house in front of Jesus where Jesus is teaching and completely interrupt the teaching. Okay. And as, as he gets lowered down, he gets lowered down and he's laying on the ground in front of Jesus. And it says in verse five, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? So we see here in Mark 2 that Jesus doesn't just, Jesus doesn't claim to be God. Instead, he forgives somebody of their sins, which he can do because he is fully God. And this wasn't just some act that he did. The scribes, who were some of the religious leaders at the time, which we will learn about in the next section, talking about the history of, of Israel um, at the time, but the scribes, who were some of the religious leaders, immediately they see that he's claiming to be God. He is claiming that he is um, God. And then we see in uh, John chapter 10, another very good example of him claiming to be God. We see this is much more direct. Um, chapter 10, verse 30, one page off. Jesus is talking and he's talking about, um, a shepherd and he is talking about himself as being a shepherd. And anytime that Jesus says my father or our father or the father, um, he is speaking of God, the father, uh, this was easily understood by his disciples. And so all throughout the new Testament, um, but especially in the gospels, God, the father is referred to as just the father. And in verse 30, he says, it's a very short verse. He says, I and my father are one. He very explicitly here explains that he is God. He is of equal status to God. He is one with God, the father, the creator, whom the Israelites worship. So obviously Jesus claims to be fully God. Um, but we also see that he is fully man. Um, he was born of Mary, who was a virgin um, at the time of his birth. And that's important because in the Hebrew culture, the father was 
the one who passed down this concept of original sin. And original sin is the idea that since Adam and Eve, they sinned. And since then, all of humanity has been has been passed down this curse of sin. And that sin, that curse is passed down through um, the male lineage, the, the man, because he is the head of the house. And so um, Jesus was born of a virgin, Mary, um, as a as a show that one, while being fully man, he was also fully God and because he did not have an earthly father. But two, because he wasn't corrupted by original sin. He wasn't touched by sin. And this jumps very quickly. This jumps into the second point, which is he lived a sinless life. Um, there is not a sin recorded. And in Romans, it specifically tells us that, uh, he lived a sinless life. So in Romans five, Romans was written by the apostle Paul, who is one of the main apostles of the early church, along with the apostle Peter, they, uh, Paul specifically traveled all over not just uh, Israel, but also Asia Minor and even all the way through Greece, eventually to Rome, and some traditions hold even all the way to Spain before he ended up dying, um, being killed for the faith. But Romans is a book that he writes to the church in Rome. Um, he he has wrote 13 of the books of the New Testament, I believe. Most of them are epistles to churches. Most of them are letters to churches. Um, and Romans is one of those. And in Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, we see Paul explain um, about Adam compared to Jesus. And it says, Therefore, as through one man's offense, Adam's sin, uh, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection from the grave, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners, the whole world. So also, by one man's obedience, talking about Jesus dying on the cross and his resurrection, many will be made righteous. Anyone who trusts and believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. So, we see that Paul here, um, believes that and writes to the Romans to believe that just as Adam sinned, Jesus didn't sin. Just as Adam disobeyed, Jesus obeyed. And he builds this contrast between the first Adam 
and the second Adam, the man who is perfect and obeys rather than the man who the man who is sinless and obeys rather than the man who is sinless and disobeys and ends up sinning and cursing all of humanity. Um, the second proof of Jesus' sinless life is uh, not directly from Scripture. Also, that's just one Scripture talking about Jesus' life being sinless. There are other ones as well. Um, but the second, the second way of seeing that Jesus was sinless is through his, um, I guess, through the imagery of the Bible. So starting in the Old Testament, and, and we talked about this more in the Adam and Eve video, so go back and watch that one to get kind of a full explanation of this. And I will talk about it more in part two of this video. So you guys will, will definitely want to go watch that as well. But um, that... When sin entered the world, there was a sacrificial system set up where a spotless lamb needed to be uh, sacrificed to cover the sins of the people. And Jesus is the spotless lamb, the lamb of God, is how he is described in the book of Revelation, that he was the perfect sacrifice for us. And he couldn't have been the perfect sacrifice if he had sinned. Because if he had sinned, he would have been like the rest of us. And if he was like the rest of us, then he wouldn't have been able to save us. Because me dying doesn't save anybody else. Because it's I get um, punished for my own sin. Or jesus gets punished for our sin and the only way for him to be punished for someone else's sin is for him to be sinless so jesus was fully god and fully man and he lived a sinless life the third and most important part is well and the third of the most important parts i would say is that he fulfilled prophecies so the book of Matthew is a really good source for the prophecies, but basically um, in the Old Testament, there were over 150 prophecies looking towards Jesus. And for the people who say that, uh, well, the prophecies were actually written by Christians to make things seem credible, and they wrote them after being able to read the Gospels. That's wrong. Blank, just flat, incorrect historically. The Dead Sea Scrolls are a really good example of that. They were found in like the early 1900s, 30s or 40s. And they contain entire books of the Bible, but also thousands of manuscripts of Genesis, Exodus, Ezekiel, Isaiah, books that were written thousands of years before Christ, and we have manuscripts from hundreds of years before Christ that, um, like Isaiah, uh, we'll actually be reading from Isaiah here in a second, that show that at least, at least hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, before Christ was even born, before Christ, before Mary, the mother of Christ, was even born, that these um, 
that these prophecies were written about Jesus long before anybody could have known that he was coming. So, um, we're just gonna we're just gonna read parts of the first uh, two chapters of Matthew because Matthew wrote to the Hebrews, and so he includes a lot of prophecy. So, um, we see. Matthew 1, 23, uh, 22 and 23, Matthew says, uh, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. This prophet would be Isaiah. Uh, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So Isaiah seven fourteen is the reference that Matthew is referencing there. And Isaiah 7.14 says exactly that, that um, that a virgin shall be with child and she would bear a son and they would call his name Emmanuel. Later on in chapter 2, Matthew quotes, um, Matthew quotes Micah 5.2, where he says, But you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is alluding to the fact that Jesus would be a ruler, not physically, but spiritually a ruler of the, um, not just of Israel, but become a ruler of the world. Finally, uh, we also see that in chapter 2, verse 14, um, so Jesus is born. Jesus' parents are from Nazareth. They are born. They have to go to Bethlehem uh, for a census. So they go to Bethlehem. That's where he's born. So he ends up being born in Bethlehem. And then the ruler of Bethlehem, who is Herod, he uh, hears about the child who is called the king of the Jews and gets upset about it. And he tries to kill all of the infants because of this. Jesus's parents, Joseph and Mary are warned by an angel, uh, to flee and go to Egypt. So they go to Egypt and in Hosea 11, one, we see, that the prophet says, out of Egypt, I called my son. Um, which would have been a very confusing prophecy, considering the fact that he was supposed to have been born in Bethlehem, and then all of a sudden he's being called out of Egypt. But then we see that Matthew chronicles exactly why both of those things make sense. Um, there is a mathematician named Peter Stoner who wrote a book called Science Speaks, and I don't believe it's in print anymore, but he did uh, calculated the probabilities of Jesus fulfilling the prophecies uh, from the Old Testament in his life, and he concluded basically that it would be completely improbable, if not impossible, for it to happen. Uh, of course, st statistically, it would not be impossible, but realistically, it's impossible. Statistically, it's highly improbable. Um, so he has an illustration to help people visualize 
just how likely it would be for Jesus to have fulfilled the prophecies about him that he did fulfill. So for this, we're going to take eight, any, any eight of the 150 prophecies from the Old Testament about Jesus. Now, he fulfilled 150 of them. But if you were just to take any of the eight, um, that would be a 1 in 10 to the 28th power chance of fulfilling just eight of the 150 prophecies. What does that look like? Here's the illustration, okay? Take the entire state of Texas, which is 270,000 square miles. Um, Texas could fit multiple European countries inside of it, like five or six of the smaller European countries inside of Texas. Um, fill it two feet deep with silver dollars and put an X on one of the silver dollars in the 270,000 square miles, two foot deep pile of silver dollars. Then choose somebody at random, blindfold them, drop them randomly in the state, let them walk to wherever they want in the state, reach down into the two foot, 270,000 square mile, two foot deep, 270,000 square mile pit of coins and pull out one coin, the coin that has the X on it. That's the likelihood of eight of the 150 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his lifetime. That's it. I have nothing else to say on that. <laughs> um, so quickly, to wrap up here, I'm just going to kind of explain the history, the historical context of how Jesus came in, and this is going to lead really well into the next video. But basically, just a quick history of kind of what's happening at the time for Israel. So Alexander the Great is a Greek. He takes over the world, as we all know. Uh, when he dies, his kingdom gets split into four major uh, four major kingdoms after his four primary generals. The two that are the most important are the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. The Ptolemies reigned over um, reigned over Egypt and over Israel for a time, and then the Seleucids reigned over Syria and over uh, Israel. They took it from the Ptolemies. The Seleucids were really bad. The Jews ended up sparking a revolution, which is the Maccabean Revolt. This is where we get the um, festival of Hanukkah, is from the Maccabees. Rome allies itself with the Jews against the Syrians, that is the Seleucids, um, to try to take over the land. They eventually take over the land, and Rome was like, yeah, you can practice Judaism, but just don't be terrible. Um, Herod, 
who ends up being the king over Judea. He ended up growing up with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. And so when Rome took over and Julius Caesar was the emperor, this is the Roman Empire after the Republic. Um, when Julius Caesar takes over as emperor, Herod gets promoted to be the king over Judea, that is, the king of the Jews. Um, this happens, Augustus Caesar ends up reigning from Rome between 27 BC and 1480. Herod was ruling over Judea about 10 years before Augustus Caesar because Julius Caesar uh, and Mark Antony, that friendship. So he ends up ruling over Judea. Uh, the Bible ends up mentioning a bunch of Herods. The reason for this is because Herod was um, a family name. So it would be like uh, Ruler Smith, right? And so there's like Smith the first and Smith the second and Smith the third, right? Uh, that is basically what Herod is. So there are multiple Herods over the course of the Bible. Um, they're not all the same Herod. They're different Herods, okay? Um, also, quick side note, I know we're not talking about Jesus' birth, but obviously Jesus being born is a pretty important uh, part of his life. Um, Jesus was actually born somewhere between 6 and 4 BC, which I know is not what you would think, because you'd think that 0 AD or 0 BC, right, same, same year, you'd think that Jesus was born in 0 since BC is before Christ and AD is Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, but people did the math wrong. Um, uh, you know, a thousand years after Christ, Christ was born, people did math incorrectly and didn't have the right historical record for it. So all of our years are shifted by like four or five years. Um, so Jesus was actually born probably in like four, five or four, but definitely somewhere between six and four BC, because that is when, because four BC is when Herod died. Uh, so he had to be born before that. And we know that right before Herod died, he had the decree to kill all the infants. So had to be somewhere around there. Um, that's kind of an overview of the Roman empire. Um, I've always thought the Roman empire was really confusing because it was like, this person rules, they get killed. Another one rules, they get killed. Somebody with the same name as the first person, but it's a different person is ruling now, you know? It's always really confused me. The Hebrew culture is much easier. So in the Hebrew culture, there were four main groups of religious leaders. The... Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and then the Zealots. Uh, we'll start with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were kind of like the conservative, but not really in the American version of conservative. Um, they were the conservative group. They were idealists. They were legalists. And they uh, really hated Rome. Um, so they 
would not compromise with Rome. They believed that if you worked with Rome, that you were a traitor and not a real Jew, that you would forsake your people like that. Um, and they were idealists and legalists to the point where they stuck with the law as much as they could. They believed that if you lived a life according to the law, perfectly to the letter of the law, that you were as holy as you could be in this life and that that was something to aspire to, which isn't necessarily incorrect, but um, they didn't care about their the motives for the way that they acted. They just cared about the way that you acted. The Sadducees were a little bit different. They were pragmatists. They um, believed that the best way for the Jewish tradition to survive was to work with the Romans, so they compromised a lot with the Romans, but they also uh, had a lot of weird spiritual beliefs that were not in the Bible. They didn't believe in resurrection, and they didn't believe in a lot of supernatural elements of the Bible. They kind of took that part out um, because it didn't really make sense with their worldview. And so the Sadducees and the Pharisees were kind of at odds fairly often about obviously the Rome issue and about how they were supposed to live their lives considering the Pharisees would believe every single letter of the law and the Sadducees were a little bit uh, looser on that. The Essenes were kind of monks. They lived a, mon a monastic lifestyle, um, oftentimes very secluded from people. They believed that living in this way similar to monks nowadays, they believed that living in this way was the best way for them to honor God and the best way for them to be as close to God as possible. Um, we see someone who is per, could have been an Essene or was definitely very similar to the Essenes in the New Testament, um, specifically in the book of Luke, who is John the Baptist, who is actually different from the John that wrote the gospel, different John. He's actually the cousin of Jesus, and him and Jesus have some interactions uh, in Luke that are pretty interesting. Um, the final group is a less known group, but it is the Zealots. And the Judean Zealots, or uh, the Jewish Zealots, were, depending on your point of view, from the Jews' point of view, they were freedom fighters. And from the Romans' point of view, they were terrorists. Uh, they would have probably branched out from the Maccabean revolt that I mentioned earlier, which is um, the book of the Maccabees is not in the Bible, but it is a historical document that many people hold to be fairly accurate, though not inspired by God. Um, Simon was one of the apostles and uh, not Simon Peter, different Simon. <laughs> they have a lot of same names. Uh, and he was Simon the Zealot. And I think that's really interesting because Matthew, one of the other apostles, was a tax collector, which means he compromised with Rome. He was like kind of Sadducee side. And then obviously the Zealots, the freedom fighters, the terrorists to Rome hated Rome. And so I think that probably would have created a very interesting group dynamic between the person who hated Rome and the person who compromised with Rome. I can't imagine their conversations went well. 
but it doesn't mention any sort of spats between them because obviously it's not important. I just like to think about that. I think it would probably be interesting. But those were the four main groups in the Hebrew culture that really influenced the culture around the time of Christ. And one of the big um, things that we see in the New Testament is that the Jews don't understand that Jesus came to save them from their sin. The Jews seem to believe that Jesus came to save them from, uh, from Rome and not from their sin. And there are prophecies about him setting up an empire or things like that, but it doesn't fully make sense that they would believe just from reading the Bible. It doesn't fully make sense for them to believe that he, uh, came to save them from Rome specifically. But um, Louis Ginsburg, who is a Jewish rabbi and a Talmudic scholar, which the Talmud is the part of the Jewish law, uh, Jewish scriptures, um, he gives a really good quote. I'm just going to read the quote here. He gives a really good quote to show us um, and he has good writings about the mindset of the Jews. He says, the material starting point for the messianic idea is of course to be looked at in the particular circumstances of the national and political life of the Jewish nation. Israel in suffering, in suffering and agony clung to the hope of seeing a scion of the glorious house of David as its anointed king. Messiah, restore it to its old glories. So we see that, that because of the Roman Empire, because of the Greek Empire, the Syrian Empire, uh, you know, the Greeks, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, and then the Romans, that because of all of the suffering that they had gone through, with the change of leadership and the way that they treated them, the zealots that came out from the Maccabean revolt after the uh, king of the Seleucids desecrated the temple in Jerusalem and um, dishonored God, that because of their suffering and their agony through all of that, that it shifted their thinking of the Messiah being a spiritual Messiah into being a physical conquering soldier Messiah that would be born and that would fight for them and bring back the glorious house of David, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom that David ruled um, and united together to end up becoming a very powerful but small empire for a time being. So because of this shift, when Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem, a, a nothing town, and fled out of Egypt and grew up in Nazareth, which was a slum, slums of a town, basically, um, he came as a nobody. 
became humble. And because of that, the Jews didn't understand that he was the Messiah because they were looking for a knight in shining armor riding a horse who would fight and kill all the Romans. And instead, he came on a donkey, which we'll talk about next time. He came on a lowly animal, humbly, um, healing people and and helping people, forgiving people their sins, but avoiding the Romans to the best of his ability in most cases. And even many times avoiding the leadership of the Jews, avoiding the Pharisees and the Sadducees because he his goal was not to overthrow a government or to overthrow the leaders. His goal was to save people. He came to save the lost, and so that was what he did. Um, so that's the end of this video, you guys. I'm glad I split it into two parts because this video is long, and I didn't really feel like doing a two-hour-long video for uh, you guys because I feel like you wouldn't watch it because um, that is a long video. Uh, but yeah, so that is the end of this video. Hopefully, the little history lesson was really good for you guys. Hopefully, you learned some stuff. Um, next video is going to be about Jesus and the passion stories. So buckle in for that one. That's going to come out in December. I'm really excited about that one. I think it's going to be really, really good. Um, so please come back and check that out. Uh, Make sure you guys comment any questions you have, any feedback you have, anything like that. Uh, like, subscribe, send it, share it with your friends, share it with your family. Um, it's just history. I think it's good history to know. Um, we numbered our years after the time period that I'm talking about for a reason because it's the most historically significant event um, that has ever happened never will happen. So thank you guys again for the support. Thank you guys for watching. Um, I will see you guys next time and God bless.